I wasn't terribly surprised. I thought it made sense dramaturgically. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dramaturgically. I'm Stephen. And I'm Mia. Today, guys, we're going to be talking about Alfred Hitchcock's, probably his most beloved film, I guess. I mean, it's I probably... I guess so. It's probably one of his most, like, recognizable. Yeah. Alongside I mean, Psycho. Psycho, yeah. probably Rear Window, and this are probably, yeah, yeah the, the most beloved Hitchcock films. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, which, I mean, the guy has about 10 or 12 films that could be certified classics anyway, but... Mm. Um, yeah, if we haven't given it away already, guys, we're going to be talking about 1958's Vertigo. Retired San Francisco detective suffering from acrophobia investigates the strange activities of an old friend's wife, all the while becoming dangerously obsessed with her. <laughs> wow, now that is... That's, well, that pretty much sums it up. Pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, so yeah, this thanks, film's... Thanks, Letterboxd. Yeah, thanks, Letterboxd, thanks for, Letterboxd, for that excellent uh, mm-hmm. little intro there. Credit to Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah, so that pretty much does wrap it up. But I mean, yeah, obviously we're talking about the, the detective James Stewart who essentially becomes entangled in this this mystery thriller, which, I mean, classic classic uh, Hitchcock is always, mm. always going to get you with the good thrillers. Yeah. Um, and he essentially goes into this spiral as he just tries to decipher whether this man, his friend's wife, is crazy or she's being possessed by something more demonic and spiritual. Mm. Um, and and as a premise, I, I was quite interested in that. Yes, um, me I, too. I, I, I think the film the film becomes a lot as we'll as we'll get into it becomes a lot more than that. It but, does, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, but as a basic premise for a sort of a noir thriller, I, w- I was pretty intrigued off the bat. Um, and this film this film opens with a great scene for me. Like I've really enjoyed it. even from that opening shot of um, him climbing the ladder. Yeah, that was really cool against, like, the blue sky, sort of dusky blue sky. Yeah. That was really, really beautiful. It was gorgeous, yeah, with the Technicolor. Like, I I love film shot Mm, on Technicolor. It's one of my favorite things ever. I'm so gutted that we don't use Technicolor anymore because it looks so good. But this, yeah, this first night scene where um, James Stewart's character is chasing a fugitive with a police comrade of his and he sort of slips... Uh, looks down, discovers that he has vertigo, and sort of we ex- we experience his fear of heights for the first time with him. Actually, I think that's like a common misconception. Oh. He has acrophobia, which yeah. is fear of heights, which gives him vertigo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which leads to his dizziness and his like nausea and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Which is very. I I thought the exact same thing. Like I thought vertigo was like something to do with like fear of heights, which it is, but it's actually a feeling that you can experience separate from like heights. Yep. It's sort of like a medical right. condition. Okay, so there you go. I think, if I'm not wrong, someone should fact check me on that. No, that makes a lot but, of sense, yeah. Um, I think this film is probably responsible for a lot of misunderstandings <laughs> about <laughs> what a fear of heights entails. I'm really good. But yes, yeah, sorry. So the film should that. be called Acrophobia. Acrophobia. But it probably really, it should be called Acrophobia. It probably doesn't sell as well no, it <laughs> to a 1950s lame. audience. It sounds super lame. <laughs> but anyways, sorry. I'll let you continue now. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, and obviously the, this, this leads to the to the death of his police comrade, which mm. immediately I think I think makes James Stewart's character a pretty a pretty um, sympathetic character mm. at that point in the film, um, as you know he's obviously 
he, he's feeling responsible for this person's death. Yep. Um, which we don't understand at the time is going to become a very important plot line. It is. Uh, <laughs> it is. So yeah. it, 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 the film does a great job of setting up what's to come later. There's a lot of plans yeah. and payoffs in this film, yeah. even from the get go. There is a very specific way that all of the people who die in this film die. <laughs> That's all we're saying. <laughs> Hitchcock wasn't super creative in terms of how the people here were going to die in a film called Vertigo, which is all about heights. So <laughs> that gives you that gives you all that you can have to say about <laughs> all that you have to know about that is <laughs> in the vertigo of the acrophobia of all of that yeah absolutely and I, I think I think that one thing that I was really interested to talk about you with Mia is is the depiction almost of I really didn't expect a 1950s film to have such an interesting analogy for mental health yeah and yeah that, that's essentially when you break down the main theme of the first 40 minutes what this film is about so yeah no I completely agree like I found the first 40 minutes. So I would divide this film into two. Yep. The first 40 minutes and the rest of it. Yep. One part is objectively better than the other. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, it's the back part. So um, you spend the better part of the first 40 minutes just wondering what the hell is going on and why you're watching this. Yeah. And it's just so confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, because for the first 40 minutes, you're going from it from an angle of, oh my gosh, this woman is possessed or either that or she's insane Mm -hmm. and both are just very confusing um it's it's set up really well as a mystery Mm -hmm. where um basically the premise is that this woman who um the main character is meant to shadow sort of believes or that she's possessed by her great-grandmother who um committed suicide um and she seems to have a very strong affinity with this historical figure, and so she is also convinced that she's going to commit suicide at 26, which is when the great-grandmother committed suicide. Um, and you're kind of plunged into this extremely strange landscape of uh, the woman kind of moving in and out of like trances in real life, and it's just extremely confusing. Like I found it very disorienting, and just like outright weird at some points mm. to be honest i don't know how you felt about it how did you feel the same way yeah definitely i uh, definitely i, I think that, i think there's two things about this opening that are really in juxtaposition for me because mm. one aspect of it i really loved and one aspect that i found really hard to reckon with which we'll talk about in a minute mm. but the bit that i loved which i'll talk about first is is that it was this as this first 40 minutes goes on and we, we, we begin to realize that it's it's pretty unlikely that this is going to be a film about demonic possession. No. <laughs> we, we begin to realize that this is more likely uh, a symptom of, of depression and mental yeah. health crisis and essentially um, borderline personality disorder potentially as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and All the questions are like raging in your head. What is wrong with this woman? Yeah. Like what is going on in her head? Um, maybe her name... Well, her name's Madeline. Yeah. So maybe just for ease of reference. Yeah, we'll call her Madeline. Her name yeah. is actually Madeline. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so Madeline and, and John sort of, um, once John sort of reveals himself to Madeline, um, he becomes quite uh, infatuated with her, but also very interested in what her mental state is. He's trying to unravel this mystery, of course. Um, and we begin to see her her secondary personality that that of this um spanish woman um carlotta, carlotta yeah um as a representation or an, an analogy for um for essentially like in my opinion like yeah mental health um borderline personality disorder depression depression 
Um, so, which is really interesting for a film of this time, I, I think, to, to have such an interesting, nuanced um, representation of that on screen. Mm. So that was definitely the part of the, of the first 40 minutes that I did enjoy, and I would have liked to have seen even more fleshed out. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, the thing that sort of does derail this opening, as we've sort of alluded to, is this really ham-fisted, uh, confused, uh, age-inappropriate, <laughs> um, just ev- every every red flag you could pretty much imagine romance storyline oh, between between James Stewart's character and Madeline. Mm, I always struggle with like the romance plot lines from these films because they're so unnecessary. I struggled with the one in Sunset Boulevard, um, where Betty falls in love with Joe, and you just think. Why? Why is this happening? Like, Betty... Okay, but that's a separate film. But, you know, like, there is definitely a trend of movies in this period just completely messing it up. Um, yeah. And aging terribly with the romances and... Yeah, this one's worse lines. in my opinion. <laughs> this one's probably worse. Yeah, yeah. This one's probably worse. But it made it so difficult to actually take the film seriously for me sometimes because I'd just be staring at the screen and maybe we'd seen these two people together for a grand total of 10 minutes on screen and they're going, I love you, I love you, I love you so much. And you're just thinking, what? Which like, yeah, it's, it's, it is hard because we are viewing these romances through the lens of like a a modern audience member. Like we're we're far more accustomed to, to long drawn out processes that, Mm. you know, uh, end in declarations of love at the very end of the film. Exactly. Um, But also, Mm. and this is, this is the craziness of this film is that we sat here probably for a good 20 minutes (laughs) Criticizing, going, oh, why? Slamming our heads into why? the table, practically having yeah. to watch this really <laughs> awkward, um, really like horrific romance of this older man creeping on this exactly. mentally ill woman. And, <laughs> exactly. And the thing was, is that at the back of my mind, and I'm sure it was at the back of your mind too, Stephen, was this film is considered like one of the greatest films ever made. And I'm sitting there watching this. <laughs> old man prey on this young woman and i'm like why what the hell is this what the hell but okay obviously it's redeemed because yeah well i i I think the thing that shocked me and i was kind of sitting here uh, with my fingers crossed because i have a lot of faith in hitchcock um Mm. when it comes to these sorts of things i know that his films do have a a reputation of you know yeah being pretty romantically inclined and um Mm. having dated romance elements but i do tend to know that a lot of the narratives end up really soaring above that. So I do, mm. I, I am able to, to put the romance elements aside, but this one, mm. it was really hard. So I'm really fucking glad. It was so central. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really glad. I'm too. really glad that they actually managed to somehow redeem this. <laughs> they did. Um, which makes me look more kindly upon what's happening in the first act because a hundred percent as yeah. we, as we find out, um, and Madeline was not Madeline after all. Mm-hmm. She was actually a woman, a woman named Judy who was paid by Madeline's husband to essentially uh, trick James Stewart's character into thinking that uh, that that his wife had had uh, depression and, and was prone to suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he was able to murder his wife, um, James Stewart was able to testify in court, essentially saying that she was depressed and and the she husband was, was able to get yeah. off scot free. Yeah. Um, all thanks to the help of this lady Judy, who was essentially playing playing the depressed part and, and trapping James Stewart's character romantically mm. um, at the same time. Exactly. Which was such a great flip on on that uh, femme fatale character, but then also by introducing another whole element of femme fatale into it yes, as well. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that, um, that 
almost a twist on the classic noir spin. Yeah, that was actually a fantastic, fantastic um, plot twist because, again, in the first 40 minutes, you're you're completely convinced that there's something wrong with this lady. <laughs> there's something genuinely wrong. Like, I remember turning to Stephen and going, what could it be? Is it borderline personality disorder? And he'd go, yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, literally, like, throughout the film, you're just trying to theorize and speculate what could be going on in this woman's mind for her to shift from persona to persona. Um and by the midpoint of the film, Hitchcock goes, nope. And that was all like a red herring, if that's the way that you use the phrase correctly. Um, and in fact, this was all like another plot um, to <laughs> kill this man's wife. And everyone's just acting. There's no mental health problems, um, <laughs> real mental health problems in all of this, unless you consider a murderous... In- <laughs> well, <laughs> like a mur- wife aside or whatever. Well, it could be a mental health problem, but... Well, even that... even Well, it, it, the funny thing about that even is that... So I guess that the balance sort of swapped for me then because then mm. I respected the romance plot line because I realized that it was all a ruse and it was actually mm. them setting this guy and girl up. And yep. I'm like, great. I love that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a real romance. Yeah. And then they, but they kind of undercut the, the profound statements they were making about mental health. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess if we lose that in the crossfire, in a 1950s film, it's probably not at the least, worst thing ever. Yeah, at least, still a cool like plot twist. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> then they still manage in the in the in the final maybe 20 minutes of the film to make some really profound, interesting commentary about mm. the mental state of people in relationships. Um, yeah, uh, controlling um, aspects in relationships. You know, yeah. um, relationships that are. <laughs> that are self-serving and, um, what's the word, um, rewarding, I guess, I guess the word like, like financially incentivized. Well, not just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not just financially incentivized, but like emotionally incentivized, financially Uh, incentivized, like relationships that are codependent on, on receiving something from the other person. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and, and that's what, that's what the film sort of becomes at at the end. Yeah. It is actually no surprise that the old man who is preying on mentally ill women, (laughs) ends up like becoming an abusive yeah. control freak of a husband boyfriend um in the end of the film and absolutely goes insane um because essentially what happens is that um after he supposedly thinks that Madeline is lost uh John goes into almost like a comatose state mm. um he actually kind of loses his mind he plunges into this like men- mental health problems of his own and he gets admitted to a psychiatric ward um and eventually he gets released but he's still searching for her and he's still haunted by her and seeing her everywhere seeing her everywhere he's desperate to sort of recover what he's lost and one day he comes across Judy, who in fact was his Madeline, but was pretending to be her. And he's struck by how similar they are without realizing that they are actually the same person. And they eventually um, slowly sort of get back, get into a relationship with one another. But because of her remarkable, remarkably similar looks to Madeline, um, John slowly transforms her into Madeline himself. He dyes her hair, he pays for clothes that Madeline used to wore, uh, wear, sorry, and Judy is actually transformed into her from her real self back into her fake self, into Madeline, and it's actually an awful thing to see on screen, I'm not gonna lie. It was actually extremely disturbing. You, you know, you know, not something of really interesting point that I only now just thought of as mm. you as you were mentioning all this. Nice. Um, it, that, like, that, the 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 fact that um Madeline 
um, well, well, sorry, the character of Judy, um, is playing Madeline, who is this person who is sort of caught between two identities, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the last act, um, James Stewart's character sort of forces Judy to then come into conflict with her own identity, forcing her into a different persona entirely, mm. the persona that of Madeline, which James Stewart has lost. Um, so in a way, it sort of becomes this... Um, she she does end up quite literally becoming Madeline in every single sense of the word, um, mm. in sense of her look, in sense of um, the way she acts, and in the sense of her untimely death as well. Exactly. It's quite tragic, actually. Um, and... I will say that this film kind of had me thinking quite a lot about representation of women. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to lie. Um, it definitely left me with some mixed feelings as to how Hitchcock represented Madeline slash Judy in this film. But before we get into that, um, I think we should probably kind of dwell on the mental health aspects and just how like unhinged <laughs> that last hour was. And I think... We need to talk about that line from Midge in the psychiatric ward yeah. when she goes, mother's here. <laughs> Can we please talk about that? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> mother's I, here. I, I, Don't tr- worry. Truly, I do not understand. Uh, I, I'm still trying to reckon with the, like, the what, what the point of Midge was. I know, exactly. <laughs> Other than to be like a great underrated character because she's just like, clearly, James Stewart has no idea that he's got a... He's, he's got a He's got a 10 back home, but he's chasing after <laughs> but she, some ten with, femme fatales. It's like, it's like she's a 10, but she has glasses. Unfortunately, she has glasses. So she's a 2. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Like that classic movie trope. But like, because now that I'm thinking about it right, that line is so weird. Mm. So for context, like I'm, if you've watched this movie and don't recall this, this is when um, James, uh, John sorry, is in a psychiatric ward and Midge is there looking after him, giving him music or whatever to give him therapy. And she kind of puts her hand on his shoulder and comes up close to his ear and goes, don't worry, mother's here. And you're thinking, what? What the hell? What the (laughs) heck? And then you kind of think back a couple scenes, now that I'm thinking about it, like a couple scenes prior, she actually started painting herself into a portrait that Madeline was looking at. And I don't know, now that I think about it, that was strange too. Well, definitely, I, I, th- I think that there's, there's a reading in in, in, in in every everyone essentially having messed up uh, personality issues in this film, and like it's a it's a profound problem with all the characters in this film is that they are all essentially dealing with um, a lack of uh, being the person that they want to be. You know, Midge wants to be the person that James Stewart's character loves. James Stewart wants Judy to be Madeline. Mm. <laughs> Judy just wants to be Judy. <laughs> yeah, but she also wants to be the person that John wants her to be, so that's why she willingly becomes Madeline. Yeah. Um, it's explicitly said there. Like, I'll like. I think the line that you made me write down was well, not made. <laughs> made you write down <laughs> at gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> you suggested yeah. gently that I write down was um, I'll be whoever you want me to be as long as I can. Something along the lines of like I'll be whoever. You want me to be as long as I can have you, or I can love you, or you, you love me. I, I think it was yeah. Will, will, will you, you will, will you love me then? Will you love me then if I become who you want me to be? Which is the perfect um, encapsulation of what we're talking about before of like mm. um, romance that is that is reliant on service and and essentially um, 
yeah, acts of mm. of service to the, to another person. Mm, mm, mm. Um, we've got pretty much twenty minutes into this podcast, man. I feel like we've barely talked about some of the best aspects of this film, which are the actual technical aspects. Oh yes, like, yes, of course. The score is unbelievable. Oh, um, I was humming it for the next half an yes, hour afterwards. Like it just definitely. got stuck in my head. There's something about Hitchcock and strings because in yeah. Psycho, he's also got that fantastic iconic string score. Um, if you've watched... Oh, wait, you haven't watched Psycho before. No, I've seen Psycho. You've seen Psycho? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you remember the strings? Yeah, I remember the strings. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, that's so yeah. iconic. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's amazing. And it's the same thing here. Like, every time John looks down from a height, the strings go, whoop. Yep. And they're the perfect um, sonic... Um, oral... Uh, sorry, like... Um, sonic. Also, sonic? Yeah, yeah, Sonic. Right, sonic representation of his acrophobia, his... His mm-hmm. fear, his his vertigo, his dizziness starting to come through and like the struggle he's going through to try and climb those stairs or get to that height. It's incredible. It's such a great score. I yeah. agree 100%. And it has this air of mystery to it as well, you know, mm. like, like the, the, the strings sort of carry carry this weight and, you know, a, a lot of the scenes of, of him sort of following Madeline at the start of the film are accompanied mm. by this eerie string and then it sort of becomes a little darker and heavier by yeah. the end as well as... As it almost turns into like a horror film in that last ten minutes, you know, as yeah, does, James Stewart's yeah. character is making her relive the the footsteps of of Madeline's journey to death. Essentially, yeah, it's awful. It's it's horrible. The um, master, absolute master, master, absolute mastery over suspense and like yeah. um, mystery there. Um, yeah. those last fifteen minutes are absolutely gripping. And some of that iconic imagery of when specifically when um, Jack. Uh, character has uh, the the nightmare after Madeline mm, dies, so and good. we go into this crazy world of like, essentially what I imagine is early CGI, um, <laughs> before CGI was even a concept. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and we we see these beautiful images and colors, and um, it's just a, a perfect dream sequence um, that that really gets us into the mental state of of where John's character is. Yes, um, yeah. And just, just absolutely fantastic and, and really iconic as well. Like, it, it, it just played in, into his whole um, mental unstableness. Um, and I think all these, these technical aspects really elevated the film. And it, in my opinion, these are the aspects that, that elevate this film to that yeah. sort of, like, top tier of films yeah. ever made level. Yeah. Because um, you just don't see films of this era um, this technically profound, this technically excellent and obviously Hitchcock master of his craft by this point mm. um, working alongside um, some of some of the generation's best actors like James Stewart yeah yeah you're gonna <laughs> you expect class but yeah I, I definitely was incredibly impressed by the filmmaking that dream sequence is definitely a turning point for me mm-hmm. up until the dream sequence I was kind of thinking all right this is pretty good mm-hmm. but I don't see what's great about it yeah but it was absolutely fun. It was so unexpected as well. It just kind of burst out, um, started happening, and you go, whoa. And then suddenly the animation comes in, and you go, whoa. And then suddenly you've got, like, the double exposures and fade-ins and fade-outs and, like, animated bodies, like, falling. It was so cool. Plain and simply, yeah. I, think, I think we got Hitchcocked. We got like, Hitchcocked. <laughs> like, we, we, got, we got absolutely tricked. Like, I mean, we did, like, we did. It's, we, the movie is a trick, yeah. The movie itself is a trick. That's mm. absolutely right. It reminds me of, like, The Prestige or something like that. Like, mm. in terms of, like, it, it's one of the... Vertigo, I mean, like, thinking about now, Vertigo is, is one of the great um, trick films. Like, it, it completely mm. lures you into a, a wrong sense of, 
of, of what you think reality is. And then it sweeps mm. up the rug underneath your feet. And yeah. um, I'm always constantly impressed by films that can do that. Um, I, I definitely understand now why this film has such a high rating yeah. Um, yeah. amongst amongst all critic fans. Um, but I, I do think that what you touched on earlier, Mia, is something that we should talk about. And um, and I would love to hear your thoughts on, on how you feel like um, women um, were portrayed in this film and specifically, I guess, around the, the femme fatale uh, trope. Yeah, so I have a little bit of... I think that's the only thing that really held me back from fully enjoying this film, I'm going to be really honest. Um, I did have a few problems with the way that um, Madeline slash Judy's character was portrayed. Um, I didn't... I always kind of dislike it when women are the ones who uh, are victimized at the hands of more powerful men. Um, I suppose it's difficult to avoid sometimes in older films where obviously gender bias is always a little bit more lopsided and, you know, obviously those sorts of modern films don't have that sort of um, gender-based reflexivity of thought. Um, And there were certain social norms at the time which would have informed, you know, the way that different people were portrayed according to their social class and their gender, not just gender, obviously, but different, like, markers of identity. Um, but yeah, I did definitely struggle a little bit with the trope of the hysterical woman because I think that is a very loaded, um, trope, which, uh, still has a lot of weight today, um, and definitely, uh, discounts a lot of mental health problems that women today face, um, who aren't taken as seriously. And on top of that, also, I guess narratively, I kind of struggled with the idea that it was actually the female character who was sort of the less powerful member of the murder plot who is assaulted and um, sort of killed in the end of the film. And she's the one who suffers um, for her sort of misdeeds, which they are. They are definitely crimes that she committed, but she was definitely not the mastermind. She was definitely not... Um, the person who orchestrated it. She was a young, small-town girl from Kansas tr- trying to make another an- a big buck. And someone, a man, who was much more powerful and richer than her, took advantage of that. And that didn't really sit with me 100% right. Um, that sort of female victimization. And I guess on top of that, you can also kind of think about the character of the person's wife who he wanted to kill the fact that she was tucked away somewhere in a country town when no one saw her and no one knows her face and so it made her so much more easy it's made her so much more easy to murder and to kill and to victimize and to throw off a building Mm. um that didn't quite sit right with me um i can't really quite place it on it being a product of its time or maybe it's sort of like a commentary i can't quite understand and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it as well, Stephen, because I can tend to be quite biased and and a bit sensitive to these issues in film, but that's kind of my preliminary thoughts on that. No, I I, I think that's a very, very good point, and I think think that it's something I I tend to agree with because this this is a flawed film when it comes to gender politics. I, I think, unfortunately... A lot of films are um, of of this era, and you know, you know me. I, I, I do love this era of film, but I'm very I'm very critical of of the social and political elements of this era. And I think that 
I, th I think that this is something that we accept when we watch films from this era, that we are going to run into these issues, but it is important, mm. like you mentioned, to call them out and to talk about them um, in modern audience context because that's the only way that we learn. It's the only way that we that we understand these films yeah. for the complex beasts that they are. Exactly, yeah. Um, so in, in, ter in terms of my perspective on it, yeah, absolutely, I agree. I think that having, having her pay essentially the consequence um, of death for for being the, the, the lesser, the lesser role in a, in a murder plot is, is really interesting, especially when we never see what happens to the husband who essentially orchestrated the entire murder, mm. tricked James Stewart's character, um, was the villain of the film essentially, um, mm. and then gets away scot-free completely. Yeah. hundred <laughs> um, percent. At, at least on, on screen. Yeah. Um, it is definitely a really interesting, strange way to, to have your film end, especially with, James Stewart being so violent with her physically, um, I think, which is supposed to be some sort of representation of his own mental state, which we see deteriorate slowly throughout the film yeah, uh, to the point where he is completely unhinged at the end. And I think mm. that is like a, he has actually lost his mind basically by that mm. point. Mm -mm -mm. Um, and and I, I do think that there's one more thing as well, which I find really interesting, which I'd like to hear your opinion on too, oh, yeah. which is that even the idea of, um, the fact that the husband uh, thought that the best way to get rid of his wife was to essentially um, create a create a sense in the community um, that she was hysterical and crazy is such mm. a wild. <laughs> it such, is such an interesting. Um, I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's smart social commentary by Hitchcock saying that like of course everyone believed that narrative yeah. or it's. Yeah. Um, or it's a bit uh, lazy. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I don't know. I think um, there definitely is a sensitivity for women when it comes to approaching ideas of, like, you know, the hysterical female character. Um, it's so much easier for people. And there's a long history of this, of women being considered mad. And uh, if I'm not wrong, um, by extension, uh yeah, so actually, like, yeah. actually, yeah, no, no. Now I'm actually recalling some re research that I did for a university essay a couple um, semesters ago where basically um, women were uh, in the, in the and I think in the England in the 1800s around that period of time, um, it was actually very difficult for the legal system to actually admit that women were... Uh, capable of crime um so a lot of women in that era were found were, were were murdering babies and murdering their husbands often uh as a result of poverty or domestic violence in their household um but people had no concept of the fact that women could retaliate back then so a lot of these murders which were premeditated and planned often of the, most of the time were actually written off as women being mad and crazy and hysterical and out of control. So for a very long time historically, there has always been that stereotype that women's emotions are cannot be conceptualized and cannot be conceived of in a rational way, in a way that a man's can. Um, so yeah, I think that for a film in the 1950s to say, hey, my wife, is, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend that my wife is hysterical and crazy and depressed and suicidal, and everyone's just gonna believe that, says a lot mm. um, about like the state of gender politics at that period of time. And that's another thing that I picked up on in the, uh, 
in the um in the court scene, mm-hmm. every single juror was a man, and they yeah. all agreed that she was crazy. <laughs> um, and yes, I get it. Like they played her to be that way, but I think it's worth looking at that. That, like you said, was the plot. That that was the idea that popped up in someone's head. Yeah. To you know, like figure out a way of getting rid of their wife, and also yeah. the fact that his his first solution was to kill the woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, get rid like, of her, I guess. What yeah. a way to what a way yeah. to say female bodies, female women are expendable. Yeah. I choose I am the big man and I choose when my wife lives and dies. Yeah. You know, like what an interesting <laughs> dramatic way. And I also kind of want to sort of say that I'm not saying or criticizing the film because to to like hate on it mm. um i think that the i'm just yeah. i'm just trying to point out you something. gave the film a great review yeah no i think the film as a whole is fantastic but i can enjoy a film i think that we can all enjoy a film but also find things to unpack and find things that we had problems with um but that's not to take away the value of the film it's just to say hey this didn't quite sit right with me i wonder what other people think um, yeah, it, it's it's a discussion starter, and yeah. I, I think that I think that these are the sorts of discussions that it's really good to have around gender politics in film history, mm. um, because you know we've, we we have come a long way from pre- the portrayal of women in this film, um, and also you know it, it it's 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 not something that we should just sit idly by and let go, because there are other films with great 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 representation um, of female. Um, uh, complex mental situations. Specifically, there's a film called Persona, directed by Ingmar Bergman, mm. which is one of the all-time great um, films about females, um, and it's directed by a man, and it's directed in this era, um, mm. in the 60s, a little bit later, but nonetheless, um, something that is far more um, on the pulse yeah. um, um, with, with, with this sorts of uh, debates and topics. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely worth calling out, Mia, and, and I, yeah. I, think, I, think, I think nobody will... Nobody will misunderstand that for criticism of the the film as a as a whole production itself. Um, but it's definitely worth mentioning um, that yeah, the gender politics are are a yeah. little a little bit misbalanced here. I mean, to summarize it, I just think that this film kind of relies a little bit too heavily on the trope of the crazy woman. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my only thing, and it doesn't really necessarily. Ju- is is not necessarily just limited to Madeline. I would say the portrayal of Judy as well, who is just like she gives up. She's she's seen as willingly giving up her agency for the sake of a man's love, mm. and that to me will always be slightly problematic, um, and slightly questionable um, to put a woman in that pers- perspective where she actively. Um, become subservient to the unreasonable and deranged requests of an older, more powerful man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think maybe that's that I think all of these thoughts kind of spring from perhaps just my own identity of being female as well and kind of looking at things a little bit differently. But yeah, I mean those concerns and questions aside, I, I still think that this is a fantastic film and it's 
definitely worth watching for the plot twists alone, you know, Absolutely. <laughs> for, the, for the journey of going on this story and figuring out what happened because it's such a, yeah. it's such a ride. It's the kind of film that definitely, I think it'd be fun to watch in a, in a group of people because um, to, to all be on that same <laughs> ride and same exactly. wavelength. It's the kind of film that like um, you sit there and I think we audibly went, what? 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 <laughs> oh my God. Like, like, no, don't do that. We, no. Yeah. We were absolutely, we were yeah. speaking to the TV throughout. Exactly. So um, if, if you're looking for a film like that and mm. um then i would i would definitely recommend checking out vertigo um and it is absolutely deserves its place in the whole of cinema as a certified classic and here's like maybe a good finishing question so mm-hmm. this film and citizen kane are often cited as one uh like they often tussle for the top spot of best film ever don't do this to me come on <laughs> you gotta choose one no I, but personally <laughs> i i have such a love and affinity and relationship with citizen kane that I, I would find it hard to compare these two after one viewing of this film. I definitely I definitely have come out of Vertigo with a massive respect for this film, and I, I, I would go as far to say as I, I love what this film does in a lot of ways, um, but I think Citizen Kane for me will always will always find its way in, into into my top 10 films. So. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with that. Um, Vertigo is a fantastic film. I am still a little bit confused why it tussles, why it has toppled Citizen Kane for number one. I am a bit confused about that, but I'm going to do some more reading. Um, but, hey, I'm not sight and sound. I'm just I'm just a girl. Well, there so. is an interesting theory about that. <laughs> it's because the, the theory is that... Because the, 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 obviously they do it every 10 years. Right, and, and, yeah. Um, the critics die. Uh, oh. that, that, that were alive um, yeah. to, to grow up with those films, right? So mm. um, there's about 10 years between this film... Well, a little bit more, about 15 years between this film yeah, and Citizen Kane. Yeah. So between the 10 years, the, those, the people that voted for Citizen Kane have <laughs> died and the people for Vertigo uh, are now in higher position <laughs> of voting position. So. That's interesting. Okay, well, that's still an interesting debate to think about in my head. So in 10 Which years, we'll probably wins? see a film in the 60s, uh, maybe yeah. Persona or something like that, top yeah, of the table. Yeah, <laughs> these... these these honestly like you said earlier like it's it's an objective or in a previous previous episode now i think about it um these films are all objective and they really just depend on your own personal enjoyment and what you like as a viewer so sometimes it's a little bit pointless trying to look at these polls and think oh i've got to watch the best film of all time because every freaking list is going to be different so you know what I think we can probably confidently say that we 100% enjoyed Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also enjoyed Citizen Kane and a lot of the other movies that we've been watching together. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's all you can ask for. Definitely. Mm. Well, thank you so much for again for joining me, Mia. Uh, You're it's welcome. been a good episode. I've been really enjoyed uh, breaking down this classic with you. Me too. Um, yeah. Until next, guy, until next time, guys. Um, I hope you have a great day. Bye.